listeners, welcome to a very special 120th episode of The Goods, a film podcast. This is Dan, and I have my usual co-host, Brian, with me. You out there, Brian? Hey, everybody. And I'm not the only one who's here. That's right. We've got a guest. I love when we have guests. This is great. We've got Andrew Milne here with us. Now, I met Andrew on the alternate ending Discord and comment section for that review website. And we've traded messages. I appeared on his podcast on a yet-to-be-released episode, and his podcast is called Two Friends Watch, which is pretty similar to uh, the format that we use. But, Andrew, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, hey, Dan. Thanks very much for having me on. Um, And, yes, so we're the... um, we we had you on Two Friends Watch, which is basically our podcast where we do what you guys do, but not quite as well. I think I made that joke on that episode. But um, <laughs> so, yeah, that's us. So I'm uh, joining you here from from Scotland. Um, and I, I was just joking before the podcast that um, you've had like uh, biblical scholars on this, uh, this show before. So I feel like I need to up my game. I'm not bringing any special qualifications other than like a fairly idiosyncratic taste in movies that I hope to explore together with you guys today. Um, but yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. And I'm, I'm glad that you were um, able to take on the, the task that I blindsided with you with when we um, when we talked about exchanging episodes. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, typically we do one movie per episode every now and then we'll throw on a second one for, for a two-parter, not a two-parter, a doubleheader, I guess. But Andrew said, hey, you know what? Let's talk about four movies. Let's talk about an entire series. Yeah. That is the Undisputed series. Like, my, what I was telling myself was was there is precedent, because I'm pretty sure you did, like, four Scream films in a row. Mm. But, like, it's it took some uh, cojones on my part to, like, suggest this. <laughs> so, so I appreciate you going along with it. Yeah, I mean... As you said, there's precedent because we did all the high school musicals back when there were three of those plus a spinoff. Oh, yeah. We routinely cover four Christmas Carol adaptations each Yuletide season. So it's not beyond the realm of our capabilities. Good to know. I think our record is still the Gravity Falls episode where we watched the entire show of Gravity Falls, which is a, a Disney show. And then we also watched Brian's special from his public access TV show, Count Gauntly, that was related. And I calculated that at almost exactly a thousand minutes. So we're nice. We're not quite there with uh, the Undisputed, but still four movies. That's that's significant stuff for us to discuss. So I think we we will go through them in order. But I'll keep the the recaps and the thoughts fairly light, just so this is not too much of a marathon episode. I mean, it could be a little more like your show for sure I, from the episodes I've listened to. You guys don't do too much in the way of recap and do have a little more discussion. So I think, yeah, it's, it's more just getting into the sort of the, the meat of the, the style more than the, the plot, I suppose, which I think is a good approach um, and something we could maybe stand to learn from, but the recap works as a structure for, to know when we want to put our specific thoughts yeah. in the mix. Oh, for sure, man. Like to each their own. Everyone's got their own style. It definitely helps me think about like, I'm not good at remembering things. So like if I see, oh, hey, we're going to talk about the villain now in the recap. I'm like, oh, yeah, here's my thought about the villain, etc. So Right. And for a bit 
on the flavor of these films, listeners. I was thinking by the end of the fourth one, you could probably make a solid 45-minute supercut of just dudes roaring. <laughs> going, I would not be surprised if that supercut's out there somewhere. I thought you were going to say punches to the head, Brian. Oh, yeah, people spitting out bloody mouth guards. Yeah. Have you looked up, like, just undisputed film series on YouTube? It's wild. Like, there are some, like, compilation videos you can find of the fight scenes from these movies. Some of them have in the region of 100 million views. Wow. And yet crazy. no one I've spoken to, like, anywhere in my life has heard of these movies before I bring them up. <laughs> I don't know how to account for this. It's like the Avatar phenomenon, but real. Wow. No cultural impact, yeah. No cultural impact. I don't get it. By the way, that's a... If you if you follow any movie forums, there's like much debate about whether Avatar 2 would be a hit because Avatar 1 had no cultural impact, but now it's the third or fourth highest grossing movie of all time, so it's become kind of like a making fun of people who didn't think that yeah. Avatar 2 could have any success. <laughs> there was a lot of good schadenfreude to be found by about the sort of third week of January. Yeah, yeah. So the Undisputed series, I guess you could call the prison boxing series, although it's not exactly boxing by the second and then on, and it's not always in prison. The fourth one is pretty much not in prison at all. Yeah, it went through a radical metamorphosis as it went. Yeah. So, yeah. So to, I guess we need to dig into that and in just a bit of the history here, just to sort of fully understand what the, what the hell's going on with these movies. Yeah, so... The first movie came out in 2002. It was directed by Walter Hill, who I'm not familiar with, but based on reading about him, seems like he's kind of a, a journeyman director who's done some drama movies, a lot of Westerns and, uh, you know, action type movies. And so he he kind of made this as a low budget, straightforward drama um, with that happened to have some boxing as the setting. And of course, you have some boxing set pieces. Pretty much. Yeah, Walter Hill, he's one of these directors whose star has kind of fallen. He had his whole heyday in the 80s. He directed The Warriors. He directed 48 Hours. He did uh, Streets of Fire. Lots of these sort of cult hit films from around that era. He's just one of these guys who never really weathered the transition to the 90s and the 2000s that well. He's still chugging away. He he released a, a film last year at the age of 82. Wow. But um, yeah, he's he's not really had the limelight since probably like the tail end of the 80s i didn't realize he made the warriors that's the one where they say warriors come out and play right that's the one yeah oh okay i've actually met and kind of spent a film festival weekend with david patrick kelly the character actor who clinks the bottles and says warriors oh no way i uh yeah i'll drop some pictures on the discord wow that's brilliant David Patrick Kelly, also known as the guy that um, Arnold Schwarzenegger drops in Commando when he says, I lied. Oh, he's in Twin Peaks as well. Oh, he feels right for that part. So I guess I didn't realize Walter Hill. He'd done a little more than I realized because he also was involved in the Alien series. Looks like he wrote Alien 3 and he co-wrote Aliens. And 48 Hours, I feel like I've heard of that, but I don't really know anything about it. It was kind of Eddie Murphy's uh, breakout film role after he was on Saturday Night Live. Um, before he, I think it was before Beverly Hills Cop, even. Uh, so like him and Nick Nolte as a sort of buddy comedy, it's it's decent. It's um, 
it's a bit risque nowadays, but it's it's worth a look. Okay, interesting. But yeah, so uh, amendment to what I said previously is it a little, he this gives it a director of note. So although it, yeah, it does look like just I hadn't heard of any of the movies since Alien Three that he did. He did something called Trespass, one called Geronimo, one called Last Man Standing. And then 2002 is when he released Undisputed. So, Yes. So this movie um, stars Ving Rhames as uh, George Iceman Chambers, um, a character who I gather you probably picked up on this is very obviously modeled on Mike Tyson. Yes. Yeah. He's Mike Tyson to a T, basically. Pretty much. So he's... Um, a character who's a heavyweight champion boxer. He's got some sort of crazy record. I, I forget what the exact figure is. It's something like 47 wins, 42 by knockout or something like that. Like top of the world, like world-class athlete who's just been sent down to do hard time in a uh, California maximum security prison. Sweetwater, I think it's called. Yeah, I think that sounds right. Yeah, on a, on a charge of rape. So... Uh, Charming right off the bat uh, that this is the sort of our point of view character. Inside this prison, there is a. Um, I realize I'm nicking your plot recap. There is a um, prison fighting ring, a prison boxing ring, uh, being sort of organized by a uh, prisoner played by Peter Falk, uh, Mandy Repstein. It's only after I uh, just looked up the cast list that I realized <gasps> Columbo. Yeah, yeah, that's it's pretty crazy, isn't it? Yeah, it's Columbo here dropping f bombs left and right as this old mob boss who organizes an underground uh, boxing ring in the. Although they have like a full on boxing training facility and like a boxing, uh, like it looks actually like a boxing ring. Like if you were watching a, a pay per view fight, it's just that it always he always films it so that you can kind of see the bars on the corner of the screen. So, you know, that you're kind of trapped inside this place, but it just looks like a boxing training. And so I don't know exactly why it had to be in the prison, but I guess I was reading about it and he said, yeah, he wanted to do the Mike Tyson story as a movie. So yeah, there you go. But also have him be like a champion fighter or fight for a belt in the, in prison. So yeah. yeah. Peter Falk as last seen represented via a impersonation in Rich Little's Christmas Carol. Oh, no way. Oh, really? Was he one of the people impersonated then? Oh, Columbo was one of the characters, right? Yeah. Ghost of Christmas Future, I believe. Yeah. Andrew, I don't know if you were listening to our pod at that point, but we uh, it was, I think, Christmas 2021. We did some older Christmas carols, and one of them was from the 80s called Rich Little's Christmas Carol, which is this really bizarre one-man show where Rich Little, who was this uh, of-the-times comedian who did impressions, and did entirely... So he played every single character, but, like, versions of impressions of celebrities or pop culture characters okay. as those characters. So who was Columbo? I believe he was Ghost of Christmas Yet to Come. Okay. That's kind of perfect when I think about it, honestly. I can totally see that. <laughs> no. Sorry to totally derail your conversation, but I just need to make sure we never forget Rich Little. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is legitimate. Um, so within this um, sort of semi-legitimate prison boxing scene that's been organized by these um, old mobsters on the inside, um, the, the undisputed champion within the prison 
uh, giving the film its title is uh, Monroe Hutchins, who is played by uh, Wesley Snipes, playing against type as someone who is incarcerated. And um, basically, when Chambers rocks up into the jail, obviously he's causing a stir. Like he's um, he's this celebrity who all the other prisoners want a piece of, and obviously the uh, the mob, uh, as represented by um, by Ripstein want to see if they can get a piece of the action, gets um, Chambers convinced to engage in a fight with Monroe and see if they can make a killing on the uh, the gambling side of things, which seems to be fairly lucrative. Um, gangsters making a killing on uh, gambling and sort of stacking the odds against fighters will be the running thread throughout all of these movies' plots. And I found that, like, I couldn't always follow exactly what it was. It was basically, like, contrivance so that it made it harder for whoever the hero of the movie was. It was like, oh, you need to win, or all the all these mobsters are going to die. Oh, wait, but it turns out all these mobsters are actually spiking your drink or doing something with to mess with you. So actually, they don't want you to win. And, yeah, I guess that's to make it feel more prison is like you're a subject to the criminal underworld. Yeah, there's always some sort of scheme to uh, to basically make life harder for whoever the hero or the underdog happens to be at any given moment. Um, and it goes to some fairly tortured and convoluted places as the series goes on. This first entry, it's still fairly, um, fairly straight down the line because we're not really in sensationalistic territory yet. Um, this is more of a sort of straight down the middle drama that happens to begin and end with uh, these boxing sequences. So I'm I'm actually curious where you guys came down on this. What did you think of like the direction in this movie? Because like Walter Hill is making some choices with the way he presents this story. At the beginning of the film, I was almost confused about who we were supposed to sympathize with. Hmm. Because we get almost equal time spent with Chambers and with Hutchins. Mm-hmm. And, like, it's a little hard at first to tell where we're supposed to come down on the charges leveled against Chambers. Because he's, I... like, trying to uh, discredit what the woman says. But then we get, like, the Barbara Walters interview with the woman. And she seems pretty genuine. And just the way he's acting towards everybody, it's like, oh, wait a minute. This is the bad guy. Like, this is not the good guy. I totally agree, and I'm glad I'm not the only one who feels this way. Like, th there's two ways we can potentially, like, c think of Chambers. Either he's been wrongly accused, in which case that's a that's kind of a fucked up decision on a writing level that the film sort of expects us to side sight unseen with the, the accused rapist. Or he did do it, in which case it's kind of fucked up that our, our point of view character is is an unrepentant rapist. So it kind of makes it difficult to sort of get invested in the character drama, which is sort of one of my top level problems with the with the film as a whole. I think Ving Rhames does a good job of sort of squaring that circle up to a point. His is he he came to play in this film, I think. He he's giving a good performance. Um when he sort of describes his version of events, like you believe that he believes it, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think I felt that way too. And he's definitely a large physical presence. I mean, I would buy that Ving Rhames boxed. Definitely. Like um he he looks legit. Like he um 
he definitely looks like he's sort of like on the tail end of a heavyweight boxing career. Uh, you know, he's slightly, you know, bit heavy set. He's not as toned as he might have been 10 years earlier, but he still like comes across as this imposing burly presence. Like he's visibly bigger than Wesley Snipes, which I think serves the film quite well. Yeah, I think both Rames and Snipes are good, but I think Rames is best in show here from an acting perspective because he really inhabits the menace, but like he's a good enough actor and a sympathetic enough presence that in general you, you still kind of detect the nugget of humanity. Um, my my thought on where the movie wants us to think about him is I think I th- I think the when he wrote it, and I feel like I read this somewhere when I was researching it, is that he wanted us to doubt the truth. But mm-hmm. like I, I don't it doesn't ever really feel like he it's ever in doubt. I mean, he more or less like, he's like, no, I didn't do it. But then he's like, well, you know, basically she wanted it. I was like, okay, so you're basically saying you did it, but like, I don't know. I didn't quite get, I feel like it undercut its angle of yeah. like if it had focused instead, I don't think this would have been tasteful, but if it had focused instead on like, Oh, she's trying to get a big payout from him and we see her being, deceitful on the side then that might have like led fed the ambiguity but it does not go that route i agree with brian that once as soon as we see her we're like okay that this is what it is i mean i don't know because it's kind of bizarre yeah like it, it's persuasive i think that yeah. angle on the story could have worked but it would have pushed it more into the sort of territory of being like an exploitation movie like mm-hmm. the like spoilers like where we're going to get to but um as is i feel like like Walter Hill almost seems to want to make this movie as a sort of pseudo documentary in a lot of ways. Like the way that he presents the story, like when a new character or a convict comes on screen, um, there will be like flashcards with subtitles detailing their crime and their sentence. Uh, there's a lot of parenthetical editing uh, where moments like um, Chambers being interviewed by the, the press is sort of um, intercut Um anachronically with other scenes uh we get other sequences where he's uh shown during his career in like black and white footage that's obviously it's staged it's the actor but it's presented like it's archival footage like it's something that's been recovered for the making of this documentary that we're watching it's this weird sort of like half step blend of styles that i just could never quite get comfortable with yeah i thought it was kind of interesting too and well, let me put it this way. I think there's a lot of things in this movie that are almost interesting. But when you have a lot of things that are almost interesting, it adds up to something that's not very interesting overall. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the aggregate of this. Like, I do think there are, you're right, some choices. Like, I really kept noticing how much he emphasized the bars. And I feel like he was trying to go the route of thinking a little bit about, like, how this high-power celebrity gets everything that he wants, but also he's kind of prisoner to his own fame and also the strictures of like what the society expects of a big violent black man. But like the writing just wasn't interesting enough and in the direction didn't really do quite enough to flesh that out that for it to ever really do much. But yeah, there were some interesting flourishes on it. It, it, it definitely, I don't know, it, at times it felt like he was trying to make a real movie rather than just like a slab of entertainment, which is what the series would become. Yeah, I thought this had the most dramatic ambition 
in terms of trying to be a quote-unquote real movie. Oh, without a doubt. Like, I could tell this was a theatrical release. Other things, a theme that kept coming to mind for me was gladiators, because these are imprisoned fighters. Yeah, for sure. In particular, uh, we've not talked much about Monroe, but obviously he's like the guy who's in there as a... He, he's in on like a 10-year stretch and he's going to be in prison for the rest of his life is how we understand it. Um, Wesley Snipes' uh, character um, inadvertently, I think, killed the... I forget exactly what the details was. I think he killed the woman who was uh, cuckolding him or was it her? Yeah, something like that. It was either her or the lover or both of them, but she was cheating and he snapped. Something like that. And it's like the one time he actually lost control. And as a result, he's uh, he's in jail for, for the rest of his time. Yeah, he's in jail for the rest of his days. And I think that's also sort of a point against the movie is that on the one hand, like Wesley Snipes isn't giving a bad performance by any means, but Monroe is just such a nothing presence in the plot. Like he he comes out for one fight at the start, he comes out for one fight at the end, and throughout most of the movie, he's just sitting in a room. And yeah, well, he's very zen. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. they contrast him with how fiery and impulsive Chambers is. Because Monroe sits in his cell and like builds matchstick models. Yeah, which is a neat sort of like character detail. Like I, I like that. And as I say, like Wesley Snipes, he's he's not doing bad by any means. But I just find like because Chambers is such a he's such a more dynamic, more active presence in the in the plot that we can't help but sort of latch on to Fing Rames and his performance of the character even though he's sort of the villain um, after a fashion. I Yeah, I agree. And I, again, I think what the idea that he was going for here, here be, he being Walter Hill, the director and writer, is that you have these two contrasts. You have the quote-unquote free man, potentially falsely accused, who comes in, but he's like really the one who's undisciplined and out of control and needs reform and then you have this other guy who's is in prison but he's and he's going to be there for the rest of his life but he's like that he follows all the rules within the system like there's the whole we haven't talked about any of the other prisoners and like there's this kind of whole hierarchy and structure and unspoken rules that come up and like Wesley Snipes follows all of them but Ving Rhames doesn't and and like once they get in there, they're kind of equals, except really the one who's like the nobody who's stuck in prison his whole life is actually the one who has grace and nobility. But then I, I don't know. Again, it didn't quite register overall. It's like it makes stabs at that idea. No, I think you're right. There's a lot of quite half formed notions that end up like adding up to a story that's just not quite there. Um, so, yeah, I agree. I'm pretty much on the same page there, although I will give it this. Final boxing bout is pretty good. I think the uh, the actual final fight between uh, Chambers and Monroe is pretty solid. Uh, obviously, it's presented more as a drama in the vein of something like Raging Bull or a Cinderella Man as opposed to a highly choreographed fight movie. But itself, the sort of difference in power where um, Chambers is overwhelmingly stronger and you know he's coming off like a relatively brief stint uh in the in the jail uh he's got something like a 20 pound weight advantage and you can sort of feel that it's just the sort of 
persistence and that sort of Zen quality you mentioned, Brian, that's keeping um, Monroe upright and, you know, still punching like way past like any sort of limit he should be able to endure. So I think in that, in that particular scene, I think the film brings the goods, so to speak. Always appreciate a name drop of the pod. Yeah, here. no, um, has to be done. <laughs> I'll just second that. I agree. It's a good boxing scene. Good couple of boxing bouts. It felt on par with other boxing movies that I've watched. You know, I was feeling it when they would get hit. For sure. Um, and of course, uh, just to play out there, like I, I do kind of like the way the story wraps up, which is that Monroe wins the fight in the end. Like this underdog uh, ends up taking out the, the heavyweight champion of the world. And as part of the agreement that he made with uh, Peter Falk, Chambers gets released early on parole, gets back to his uh, career as like this sort of headliner. Um, and he denies any sort of knowledge or involvement in the prison tournament. But of course, all the prisoners in the, uh, in Sweetwater who saw the fight know exactly who the real undisputed champion of the world is, which I think is kind of a neat ending. It, it pulls things together reasonably well. Yeah. Good wrap up. <clears throat> I'll, and a uh, couple parting thoughts on this one. There's a character named Ratbag, which is just a great <laughs> prison name. That's it's... one of the orcs from Lord of the Rings, isn't it? Or am uh, I thinking of Gorbag? I don't know. Good question. I am uh, well quoted as a Lord of the Rings skeptic, so I'm not the person to ask here. Oh, fair, fair, fair. I did okay. uh, check out your Lord of the Rings podcast series, though. So you, you really spread that one out. What, it was like one installment each Christmas or something? Yes, thank you. Yeah, we did. Uh, we got that done last year. So uh, there's about three hours. There's about a Lord of the Rings films worth of us talking about Lord of the Rings out there. <laughs> yeah. Um, that was fun. The second name you said sounded familiar as a possible orc, but also not to be confused with Grotbags, the singing witch from a uh, British children's show that inspired Gruntilda in the Banjo-Kazooie games. Oh, good grief. Okay. I'm not familiar with this British show, I have to say. <laughs> you schooled me there. Brian knows lots of weird and obscure stuff and never surprises me when he pulls out some reference. All right. Any other thoughts on Undisputed 1 before we transition to Undisputed 2? I'm like, as I think I've um, said before, like, obviously I want to sort of do the series justice and do it comprehensively. But for me, like you get through Undisputed 1 to talk about the sequels, because that's where I, my enthusiasm kicks in for the series. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that. How did you come across the series? Okay. So I've been watching these movies, I've been a fan of these movies since not long after the third one released, so around 2011 sort of time. I think I encountered it at the time as sort of like through the YouTube compilation compilations I mentioned earlier. Because um, you would find all sorts of like clip shows on early YouTube of like doing these martial arts dudes doing these spectacular um, combinations of tricks. And the the clips from the undisputed movies always stood out to me as being particularly clean and particularly impressive and i think that's where a lot of people sort of like fall off the series they'll watch these compilations and uh leave a like or leave a comment on youtube they won't actually seek out the real films but i wanted to go a little bit deeper and 
um, ended up finding that I that I really appreciate these um, as like a martial arts nerd. And this is kind of why I wanted to bring them to you guys' attention. Um, the first time, the first episode of The Goods I listened to, I got into the show uh, like last year, was the episode that you did just in the wake of They Live with Will. Uh, I think it was your top five fight scenes. And I think at that time, I, I think it might have been yourself, Dan, who made a comment to the effect of like fight scenes are not really a, an area of cinema that you, you have any sort of special like investment in or, um, or or particular appreciation of. And when I heard that, my ears pricked up. Like I was like a Labrador hearing like a postman coming up the driveway. <laughs> like, I want to pull that thread. I want to see what, <laughs> like, I want to see what this guy makes of these uh, like very silly, uh, very martial arts intensive uh, movies that are, that have fight scenes as there is on that. So this yeah. is why I'm excited to find out what you guys made of these. Okay, interesting. Yeah, yeah. My my equivalent of a fight scene is like uh, indie dramedy, two people arguing. Like that's the kind of fight scene that I will, will just soak up every single one I can find. But where Adam Adam Driver punches a wall, <laughs> <laughs> Marriage Story. I actually haven't seen Marriage Story, but I I definitely will at some point. That's uh, Noah Baumbach, I think. Yeah, yeah. If I remember correctly. So anyways, cool. Well, thank you for bringing something that will challenge me, expand my horizons. B Brian, too, I think said that something along those lines. So the only uh, martial arts movie that I ever like deeply appreciated was one I saw in college. And then I probably showed to like five different groups because I just found it massively entertaining. It was Ong Bak Muay Thai Warrior. I have seen Ong Bak so many times. It's it's a it's like the perfect movie to bring to a dorm and drink beer and watch. It's just very entertaining. I've done that exact same thing. I I got my copy of Ong back on DVD when in my first year of university, and I showed it to everyone, including <laughs> the people, like especially the people who weren't willing to to watch it. Yeah. As for me, my background is I got my first DVD player Christmas of two thousand one, and it came with. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Oh, nice. So yeah. I'm familiar with that one. And then more pertinent to our first film today, I've seen several of the Rockies. Rocky mm. 1, I think Rocky okay. 2, for sure Rocky 4, the one where he fights the Russian. So I was seeing some echoes of that here. Oh, certainly. Yes. Yes. Um, so yeah, without further ado, Undisputed 2, Last Man Standing, which I only just realized... Uh, like as we recorded this, uh, is also the name of an, an a Walter Hill film. Oh, uh, that's so... a good point. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, this um this is a direct DVD sequel, directed by Isaac Florentine, uh, an Israeli director who'd um made several low budget features up to this point. He actually cut his teeth um coming to America uh, on several episodes of Power Rangers. Um, Whoa. The, um, yeah, the interstitial like American footage. Brian just smiled. Yeah. I saw that. Yeah, with with uh, like Jason David Frank and uh, Johnny Young Bosch, those guys. Um, and you can sort of see like some of the visual sensibilities carrying over to uh, this movie. Um, this finds George Chambers uh, now basically over the hill of his boxing career. He's broke. He's off in Russia uh, filming vodka commercials. 
um, basically trying to find a way to sort of like keep up his lifestyle that he got used to as the champion. He got recast. He yes, good point. He has been recast uh, in this instance as um, Michael Jai White, um, who seasoned sort of direct-to-video like action star, uh, legit martial artist. Uh, he is probably best known for almost having a Hollywood career when he played Spawn. Mm. Um, but that was cut short by the fact that Spawn was awful. Um, <laughs> What's the the funny movie he made that's like a play on black exploitation? Wasn't didn't he Black Dynamite? That movie is so so funny. That's like some of the hardest I've ever laughed was watching Black Dynamite. I think if Black Dynamite isn't the funniest film of the 21st century, it's only because Hot Fuzz also came out in the 21st century. But Black Dynamite's one of my all time favorites. Yeah, Hot Fuzz is great, too. Yeah, like extremely funny film. So, yeah, he's taking over from Ving Rhames as Chambers, not giving as nuanced or um, or deep a take on the character as uh, Ving Rhames was. He's still sort of bringing his sort of characteristic charm uh, to the part um, when he gets framed uh, by uh, local authorities who plant a bag of cocaine on his possessions and use that as a way of basically shanghaiing him into a local prison, a local Russian prison, which has its own underground fight circuit with a heavily invested gangster gambling scene. Well, one thing I want to throw in here. Um, so I don't know if there have been any since you've been listening, but we have a semi-recurring feature on our podcast called Violent Ends, where we have ah. two movies that have similar setups, but have very different endings where one of them is usually quite violent and one of them is usually quite happy. We usually do a good job of finding pretty interesting connections. I think we've done it four three or four times. But this one had me thinking you could do a violent ends with Lost in Translation, which the premise being you have an over the hill comedian in desperate need of cash flying to a foreign country to film a liquor commercial when things go haywire. And in the case of Lost in Translation, the way things go haywire is he gets to spend a week with Scarlett Johansson wandering around Tokyo. And in the case of uh, Undisputed 2, it's he gets thrown in prison and has to join an underground martial arts ring for to save his freedom. So, yeah. <laughs> I like this comparison. Like, I'm going to need to I'm going to need to do that as a double feature one of these days. I'm almost surprised Bill Murray didn't do a boxing movie back. Like, I feel like that could be a companion to uh, Stripes and Meatballs. Yeah. It's like, there's okay. the one where he's in the army. There's the one where he runs a summer camp. There's the one where he's a boxer. But no, never happened. <laughs> uh, I could see that. I could see that. Uh, he's, he's got the, the looks for it. I could, see, I could picture Bill Murray as a boxer. He did do a bowling movie. Kingpin, he played the villain. Oh, nice. <laughs> But uh, but anyway, I buried the lead, which is the reason that uh, Chambers needs to be um, framed and uh, taken to jail uh, to fight for his freedom, which is that um, the dominant force in the uh, Russian underground prison circuit is a gentleman that goes by the name of Yuri Boyka, the most complete fighter of, in the world. Uh, played by Scott Adkins, who is an English um, actor and stuntman, um, up to this point, he had um, 
done a lot of work in Hong Kong as uh, stunt doubles and sort of bit parts where he would face off against Jackie Chan and uh, Sammo Hung and get these sort of guys. This is the first sort of like significant part he got in the movie that with like some money behind it. And he is basically playing Yuri Boyka as imagine like a Russian man as a G.I. Joe villain from the 80s. Yeah. Um, he's the most like over the top like Russian caricature. Like if you got a comics artist from the 90s to draw a scary Russian man, this is what they would draw. Right. He's kind of like Zangief in Street Fighter. <laughs> kinda, kinda. He's shot like this human monolith. Like he's an Adonis. This just like I, they always oil up his pec. Or no, what's the muscles right here? Is that your pecs? Pecs, yeah. Yeah, they always like oil up his pecs so it's like shining bright. It's like, uh, and he's just got the, I mean, he must be roided out of his mind. He's so huge in this and very intimidating. He, he's a little leaner in the sequels, but um, here in this one, he is just like, he's, you know how action movies often have like one bad guy that the hero's got to face who's like an enforcer, who's just like this inhumanly large, non-human entity, basically. Um, here he's like that, but he's the main villain. Pretty much. What's actually kind of interesting about this is that um, Scott Adkins is actually quite a bit smaller than Michael Jai White in real life. There's a lot of trick photography going on in these movies. Oh, like, wow. Yeah, Michael Jai White's like a good, he's probably a good 30 pounds heavier and about four inches taller. And there's a, there's a ton of like trick cinematography going on to make them look like they're equal in stature. That's interesting because... Obviously, then in the subsequent movies, as we're going to talk about, Boyka hangs around, and they got to find people bigger than Boyka. So, yeah, yeah, which is uh, which is a struggle. But yeah, like Scott Athens, he's a normal sized guy. He's like five ten, and he, like, I don't want to accuse him of like steroid abuse, but like he bulked up so massively for playing this particular part, and it pays dividends because he's just such a compelling cinematic creation every time he's on screen. We're introduced to him beating the absolute living tar out of one of his opponents in jail, uh, doing all these unbelievable um, sort of trick kicks and sort of acrobatic flips and what have you, and making them look absolutely savage. Um, I'm, I'm curious: do either of you guys like um, pay any attention to like combat sports, like uh, UFC or boxing, like in real life at all? No. Yeah, I can't say that I do. Does he have any background in that? I mean, I bought by the end that he had done MMA. Uh, no, uh, as I understand it, no. He's always been a screen fighter. Yeah, they, they do have fairly persuasive choreography that makes it look like he could handle himself in the ring. And, uh, you know, obviously all these guys are in great shape and they do have martial arts backgrounds, but I don't think they've uh, ever, certainly Adkins, I don't think has ever fought professionally. But there's um there's a great construct you guys use on the goods, which is like when you talk about Quentin Tarantino dialogue, I think you've used this phrase a couple of times. It's like the conversations you have with your friends, and if you recorded a hundred years of those conversations and only took like the uh, the the funniest, cleverest parts of it, the fight choreography in the undisputed movies is like if you watched a hundred years worth of UFC fights. <laughs> And only took the highlight reels and used those to make the uh, make the fight scenes. That's essentially what it looks like. These incredible slow motion glory shots of these high flying kicks landing with impossible precision. And 
this is what uh, this is what caught me onto the series in the first place. So I'm curious, like, what was uh, what were you guys' responses to that? Did um, have I made converts of either of you? So I mostly just found the transition between one and two of these movies super jarring because it's totally <laughs> different. Uh, because well. Chambers, this new actor that we've had Aunt Vived into the position who is coming to fight Boyka. He's still using his fist. He's still a boxer, but Boyka is very much an MMA guy, like a kickboxer. And Full so he's, body, yeah. he's flipping around through the air doing these fighting game kicks and it's shot and edited completely differently too. Almost I was feeling like like a kung fu type thing. Like he's kind of hanging in the air, almost like Xena warrior princess like defying physics to a degree. And it just felt very different from the more uh, grounded drama of the first one. I mean, it's it's just a totally new movie. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's like I found the boxing fine in the first one, not especially interesting, but here it's like, everything is in service of the fight scenes. It's not it's not a story that happens to have boxing. It's Hey, let's string together some fight scenes with a little bit of a story about how these are characters in prison, you know? For sure. Absolutely. And very just, whereas the Undisputed, it, like it has some attempts at being more cinematic and like doing kind of interesting things with the compositions, like you were kind of talking about, different editing things. This one is just very clean. Like, let's make a really cool looking martial arts, like easy to follow, impressive fight scene. And like, that's that's the goal. That's the end there. It's, you know, it's not capital A art. It's It's like a... It's a cheesy, not necessarily cheesy, like there's some art, that's not to say there's no artistry to it. Oh, it's cheesy. It's totally cheesy. Just all in fight scene thing. So um, fight scene vehicle, I guess. But um, For sure. One thing that this does is, you know, we talked about how Chambers is here and he's essentially the hero, Michael Jai White. Um, you know, we talked quite a bit about how in the first Undisputed, Chambers, he's kind of a co-protagonist, but he's also more of the villain, basically. Mm -hmm. So we have this villain who became the hero. So now uh, we have a new villain because our old villain is the hero. And then we're going to see, uh, spoiler alert, that the third movie, the villain of this one becomes the hero of that. And I was like, this is an interesting format, like conveyor belt for a, a series where you have the hero... The villain of the last one becomes the hero of this. It's like you can have an eternal spinoff. It's like, don't the Bachelors TV shows do that? It's like one of the Bachelors becomes the focus of the next one for the Bachelorette. And then one of the contestants from that becomes the Bachelorette for the next one. Right. The like compelling runner up among yeah. the contestants becomes the star of the next season. Honestly, the, I mean, this kind of happens in Rocky where Creed is the villain in the first one and actually beats Rocky and then they have the rematch yeah. and then they're friends the rest of the series and now we got the whole spin-off series focusing on Creed's son. Yeah, for sure. So I, I can see that. And I, I would have actually appreciated that if they'd kept that trend going. They do eventually break it, sad to say, uh, because basically it, it wasn't like they planned. I don't think any of these films were made with the intention that there were going to be more sequels that just sort of ended up happening. But um, yeah, Boyka ended up being the breakout character and sort of like ended up making Scott Adkins' career. He's um, He's gone on to have a fairly, I don't know about lucrative, but certainly like he enjoys a profile as being like the last sort of, of the DTV action stars. But certainly in this film, um, there's a lot of run up. There's a lot of build up to essentially 
Um, there's this Russian gangster who basically has the run of the place, Gaga, played by Mark Evenier, um, who is kind of delightful. I think he's uh, he's he's kind of a fun uh, Russian gangster baddie and um, basically maneuvers things into position where it turns out uh, it was Chambers' manager setting him up. Uh, basically, he has to, to fight and uh, earn his freedom uh, so that... Uh, due to certain convoluted ske- gambling schemes that will uh, win him Gaga's favor. doesn't really matter. Not terribly important. The point is that um, at one point, Chambers has his first round with uh, Boyka. I-, I quite like, this is essentially kind of like uh, when Floyd Mayweather and Conor McGregor actually um, had their fight in real life where uh, the-, the MMA artist decides that he's going to fight just with his fists and promptly gets knocked right out and goes back on that promise. This is the one where it was rigged, right? He got drugged? Yes. Uh, Chambers gets his drink spiked by uh, by Boyka's ringman, which was against Boyka's wishes. Like, Boyka didn't know they were doing that, but they, they thought they were helping, uh, which comes back to bite them. This one, this part made me laugh pretty hard because Boyka, when he discovers... So remember, it was rigged in his favor. So he won the fight. And when he discovers this, he gets so mad that he kills his own minions. It's like, that's the badass territory that we're dealing with right now. It's one of those sort of early iconic moments. Uh, like, There's so many great, like, um, Boyka line readings in this movie. It's like, um, Chinese martial artists, Japanese samurai, American boxers, all made fighting into a science. I am the next stage. I do not need you to drug my opponents for me. And then snaps the guy's neck. (laughs) Yeah, I found his epithet interesting, how he's always saying he's the most complete fighter. Like, not the best, just most complete. Yeah. All the pieces that you need, they're there. He's not necessarily the fastest. He's not necessarily the strongest. He's just sort of got the full set. The most complete it's it's almost like a, a phrase you would use like backhandedly to describe someone. Yeah, it's like uh, he's not the best, but you know he's the most complete. But here, he Boyka definitely like claims it as his own. And it's interesting how this this phrase, yeah. So this is like his his trademark, the most complete fighter. That it kind of evolves or gets like slightly t- twisted meanings as the series goes along. He's good at personal branding. We'll give him that. So they have a rematch, but uh, in the process, like uh, Chambers has befriended this old, like uh, secluded Russian man who lives in the uh, the latrines of the the prison. This is something I have to give the film credit for. It makes the prison look really convincingly squalid and gross. I think like Isaac Florentine is a good director. He's got a good handle on composition. He's got a good handle on like how to use a setting to make it persuasively cold and grotty and like unpleasant. And I, I think he does leverage that quite well uh, in sort of developing this friendship that develops between um, Nikolai and Chambers in the in the depths of this uh, hellhole. Turns out Nikolai is like this um, ex spec ops Russian dude who knows how to how to break legs, even though he can't do it anymore because he's in a wheelchair and what have you. Uh, so basically, Chambers learns how to how to kickbox in like an afternoon. <laughs> yeah, who would have ever thought that the mysterious man living in the depths of the prison who has a beard and who you know 
doesn't ever talk like directly about his life very much actually has some very important secret that will help the hero win his fight. I know it's great, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's like wax on wax off, but with a lot of shit. Literally. Yeah. It's like a whole scene. It's like, I don't know. It's like for a scene at a time, it becomes a prison exploitation movie. And, uh, chambers is like being forced to literally shovel shit around the prison. And yeah. It's really disgusting. Yeah, the film films fills in a lot of the blanks with like just how it's like you say it's an exploitation movie. It's um it's Chambers getting made to take these freezing showers or made to shovel shit or being sort of like chained up outside in the cold and the other prisoners aren't allowed to close them. It's it's how the film like stalls for time in between the fight scenes a lot of the time is with these sort of like scenes of depredation. Uh, which is uh, it is what it is. It's the, it's the filler. It's the package stuffing. But um, yeah, so Chambers learns how to kickbox in an afternoon. There's one really funny shot where like Michael Jai White, he's working the heavy bag, and then he looks down and sort of notices these appendages below his waist for the first time, and like, oh right, hitting <laughs> hitting people with these extra two limbs that I possess, uh, which I thought was quite funny. But they have his, they have their rematch, and uh, he absolutely cleans Boyka's clock and snaps his knee. Yeah, I was kind of surprised. It never felt like there was any doubt who was going to win the finale. It was like, oh, here Chambers is is rearing to go, and he he just dominated. Yeah, and just for icing on the cake, just completely breaks the leg in half. Really gnarly. Yeah, I I completely agree, and this is the biggest complaint I have with the film. It makes, like, the final fights... This film would be automatically, like, a point better for me if the actual final fight that the whole proceeding had been leading up to actually felt like, at any point, Boyka had the advantage. Like, because as is, like, Chambers just dominates. Right. If there's any drama in it, Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, which which is a shame, I think. It's like the the film sort of fumbles at the last hurdle because the choreography, like the technical chops, are there, but they just sort of like the drama doesn't quite land like it should. Doesn't hit as hard as it ought to. So let me ask you something, Andrew. So you you obviously big fan of it. Sounds you didn't say this yourself, but I take it you follow MMA and 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 boxing to some extent. To an extent, yeah, I'll watch, like, I don't follow it religiously, but I'll watch the occasional highlight reel or, like, um, look up whoever the big fighters are of of a given day. So when you see, like, a well-choreographed fight scene like this, it gets the blood pumping, it gets you excited. It's, you you enjoy just the experience of watching a cool fight scene. Yeah, for sure. Like, completely independently of narrative context, I just like the sort of things that a human body can do when it's um, set to this sort of motion. It's like people will often use this sort of comparison to dance, but I think in some way fight scenes are more inherently cinematic because there's conflict baked into it, mm -hmm. which is, um, I, I just keep coming back to, to scenes like this just because, yeah, I, I appreciate looking at what these performers can do. Um, just without wires, without without stunt doubles, in ways that I don't get from uh, even something like a Mission Impossible. Like you, you show me Tom Cruise jumping out of a plane. Like okay, he did it, but like they could have faked it. 
like there's probably like processes available to the guys at Paramount to make this look as convincing as it was without having to like actually do it for real. When I see something like Undisputed 2, it's like it it's the reality of it, you know, the the physics, the inertia, the uh the momentum, the mass. Like you can't really fake that. There's something you're never going to quite touch with CGI or wires that that comes with the performance of a a well a well-toned, well-honed, well-practiced human body. For sure. Do you do you watch WWE or anything like that? I've never gone into uh, professional wrestling. No. Okay. It's, like again, I appreciate the performers in the WWE from what I've seen of them. It's the sort of surrounding sort of like pageantry that I've never got into yeah. quite as much. So as an aficionado of fight scenes, I guess I'll also ask you when you see the uh I guess the the more physically intense and like brutal moments like a like here when he breaks his leg at the end hmm. or like when you see a, a hard smack and blood comes flying out of his mouth and then he's all battered when he gets down i i asked my brother about this a uh, different brother not the one uh who's appeared on the podcast and he said it's a little bit like spicy food it's like on um, spice isn't inherently a pleasant thing but it like adds intensity and like uh some bite to the experience so that it like it just kind of charges your sensory experience a little bit more. I was like, okay, that actually kind of makes sense. Cause for me, I just find it not very pleasant to see like a human being physically being mutilated, but like, I kind of get that it raises the stakes and it raises the intensity. Some spicy food is a good comparison. I think, yeah, there's a, there's a lot like that. Um, Cause there are probably versions of fight scenes like this. You can find where um, there's not very much emphasis on the physical contact, where there's not very much emphasis on the violence of it. And again, like, as you say, this is an exploitation movie at the end of the day, we're meant to understand that this is like grueling and like a, a gauntlet for these guys to go through. So for me, there's sort of an inherent tension between, you know, making the body do what you tell it in con it, in intention with the body breaking down is how I understand it. And obviously there's different kinds of fight scenes like this. Uh, this is a very different style from something like say the raid, the undisputed movies really glorify uh, the, the movement. They present it as being this sort of idealized, um, almost like gladiatorial, like, uh, like you said, Brian, um, Isaac Florentine, he actually uses that word specifically in interviews. He wants to glorify the action. He wants to make it look as, picturesque and statuesque even as possible. I think hmm. Colin Boyka and, and Adonis is pretty germane, honestly. That's certainly how they're, they're shot. That's interesting, yeah. But um, yeah, so anything else on Undisputed 2, um, which does end quite happily, I found. Yeah, he gets his winnings from the fight and he uses that to, I guess, buy the freedom of the man who lives in the poop downstairs. And uh, I guess you could just do that in these kinds of movies. It's like, hey, this this guy's in prison. Well, here's a briefcase full of money. Well, I guess he's not in prison anymore. So, I mean, that's fine. Um, but uh, yeah, and then he's free. So, you know. I think it's apparent like just how corrupt this prison was. I guess, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was wondering, so there are a ton of Russian names in the credits of this one and the follow-ups. Like... 
was the production company Russian or how did that come about? Like, what was the decision making factor that said, yes, we're going to set all of these in Russia? I'm not so sure that a lot of it was um, Russian, like native talent, actually. Like, I, I think the film was actually shot in Bulgaria, um, which I remember because I saw there was a there's a very funny uh, line at the end of the credits of this movie. Uh, this film was only made possible by the cooperation of the Bulgarian prison system. <laughs> Which, like, you, you don't tend to see in a lot of uh, films, but... Interesting. So perhaps it's just Eastern Europe more broadly, but I saw a lot of Ovs ending the surnames. I think certainly the uh, the secondary cast, but I think there's actually quite a lot of Israeli credits bound up in this like certainly florentine is israeli i think his producer boaz david davidson is israeli so i don't know why exactly russia i think just because it's it, it registers to american audiences and english-speaking audiences as a scary country uh, where you probably wouldn't want to go to jail and like everything else just sort of proceeds from that point and and it derives from like the rockies and also i recall around the mid 2000s late 2000s I, I don't follow sports as much as I used to, but um, there was like a big wave of Russian boxers who were who had yeah. like a rise at the time. And I don't again, I, I don't actually keep up with them, so I don't know who they were. But I remember that was the thing is like boxing is starting to get dominated by the Russians. So like this narrative that like just this image, I guess, of Russians as this physically domineering uh, specimen is like very much a piece of certain types of entertainment. What it had me thinking of is there's an episode of Gravity Falls where a Street Fighter character comes to life and he says, I need to face the world's best fighters. Take me to the Soviet <laughs> Union. <laughs> um, what I think it actually might be, um, possibly boxers, but there's also, because this was made in 2006 that this came out anyway, I'd need to check this, but I suspect that might have been around the time that uh, Fedor Emelianenko was like in his prime in the MMA circuit. Mm. Who, like, if you if you talk to the enthusiasts, like he's sort of known these days as being like one of the all time greats. Basically, just this absolutely unstoppable force uh, in like the Japanese fighting promo promotions. So I do wonder if that was part of the inspiration for Boyka. Feels like it might have been. Okay, I can definitely see that because there's definitely more UFC in here than straight boxing oh for sure like um this is if i remember correctly this was the same year that uh, donnie yen made spl in china which is famous for being the the movie that really brought in like mma and grappling techniques into uh kung fu movies hmm. so this was really sort of like 2006 was a bit of a turning point in the genre for when mma really found its way into this kind of intensive high impact choreography so there is that. Okay. But um, so do we want to do uh, jump into Undisputed 3? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Okay. So uh, Undisputed 3, 2010. Chambers is nowhere to be found. We are now firmly in the uh, thrall of Boyka as the protagonist, who's fallen on some hard times. He's uh, he's not having a great time of it uh, since he got his, uh, his leg snapped. He's limping around this pro this prison now, uh, basically acting as the janitor. Uh, now he's the one shoveling shit. Yeah, he's the and guy he's... that he that he trained him in the previous one. That's now him for about ten exactly. minutes. Exactly. Yeah. Somebody in the comments on a YouTube video said he's undergoing the Andy in the office 
like disgraced Andy arc because there's a, a period in that show where uh, Andy Bernard briefly is like posing as a janitor and he's like as scruffy as possible because he's like he's trying to expose Robert California, James Spader. Uh, it, it's complicated. It's in the later seasons when there's less and then no Michael. Uh, so hard to care about. But I thought that was funny. Yeah, yeah, definitely. He's got this great big mop of hair as well, where he's like, um, I, I think we're we're introduced to him when uh, Gaga, uh, the returning Mark Evenier, is uh, taking a tour of the prison and seeing all the new fighters. And he drops a banknote and Boyka comes along to pick it up. And he's like, I don't want your fucking money. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's, all, it's all very emo for about 10 minutes. But... And then abruptly ends. Just like, it's like, oh, no, not anymore. <laughs> Dark yeah, period over. Like I've decided my my knee is better now, so I made <laughs> it so, which is fair enough. So he um, there, there's a new um prison tournament, but this time the stakes are raised because it's from uh international fighters brought in from all the hardest prisons from all over the world are now convening on Georgia, the the country. We should clarify, not the state, uh, where they're being brought to Gorgon Prison for an elimination tournament that will uh, determine uh, one person, one victor, uh, at the end of it all, will earn their freedom, which obviously is a fairly strong incentive because all these guys are serving like life sentences. And um, Boyka, uh, basically at the last moment, decides to challenge the uh, champion at his, his home, on his home turf, um, gets back into his groove by uh, pirouette kicking him through uh, through the through the ropes, and uh, off to Georgia he goes. Yeah, so this is the feeder tournament to get into the actual global tournament, which yes. is just a really yeah. a really fun concept. It's yeah, like... I like this a lot. It felt like we were leading to it. It was a lot like the Street Fighter games because everybody is like a stereotypical representation of their own country, and they've all been brought yes. together to do this big <laughs> tournament face off. This is it. It's like this is a true elimination tournament movie. And you don't see as many of those as you'd think, which is hmm. um which strikes me. It's like there's the original Mortal Kombat. I think they made a Tekken movie um along similar lines. Actually had one of the same actors, if I remember correctly. Um but yeah, this is uh, basically just like a group of eight. Um there's a Russian, a Colombian, a Brazilian, an American, a Frenchman, a Croatian, a Greek and a North Korean, if I remember correctly, all sort of representing their home countries and their home styles. Um, and one will earn their freedom and the others will go home, except not. They'll, they'll actually get shot, as it turns out, uh, to uh, raise the stakes in a mid-second act twist. Right. I like how you have the stereotypical versions of each international fighting style. It's like the Korean <laughs> guy does like kind of has like ninja looking pants and he does like kung fu style moves and stuff oh he's doing taekwondo that's okay. uh the, the korean guy is very much a taekwondo uh practitioner like that's one of the really distinctive ones and the brazilian guy is doing capoeira which i only know about because they had a bob's burgers episode about capoeira <laughs> yes uh played by latif crowder no less uh who is one of the uh sort of probably one of the most high profile capoeiristas in the world um, he's done a few other martial arts movies. He was actually uh, Eddie Gordo in the Tekken adaptation. Uh, he fought Tony Jaa in The Protector, which was like the spiritual successor to Ong Bak. Mm-hmm. Um, 
just a really extraordinary physical specimen. Like he looks like he, like he he doesn't look like he's obeying the same rules of physics as the rest of us. But um, so once they arrive in Georgia, uh, Boyka gets um, he comes into conflict with uh, Turbo, who's the uh, representative from America, and who's a real George Chambers type, should we say? Yeah, he's basically George Chambers, but slightly different, I guess. He's like a little younger. Yeah, and yeah, that's where his brashness comes from. And I don't think he's like an established champion, or maybe he is. I can't really remember exactly how they frame it. Now, I think he's uh, he's like a disgraced marine or something like that. Right. I know he's a marine because he got, he keeps keeps doing the marine uh, slogan. Although, is that the marine slogan? I'm pretty sure that's the slogan of the Bear Grylls show. He says, "Improvise, adapt, overcome." I think it comes from the Marines, though. Like, I don't know if it's yeah, officially yeah. A, a Marine slogan, but I think okay. it comes from there. All right. I think it's yeah, it's like an unofficial Marine thing alongside. Um, I think Semper Fidelis is the the official one, but I don't know. I'd need to check that. Played by Michael Shannon Jenkins, who I thought was actually really charming. Like he's uh, he's doing the sort of Michael Jai White sort of like pouring on the the charm thing uh, equally well. Like each equally sort of brash and hot headed, but like with the the talent to back it up to an extent um and these obviously he and boyka are now at loggerheads Mm -hmm. um this is my favorite version of boyka i should say this is um this is him in peak anti-hero form where he actually does feel like he's humbled by his loss at the end of the previous movie where he's like no longer like sees himself as like like above everyone else by fiat like mm-hmm. that lesson has been drilled into him but he's basically got this really intense dedication to like fair play and like he's still really you know growly and antisocial and what have you and he's still basically looking out for number one and brutalizing his opponents in the ring but like he's like just disgusted by the sort of corruption uh, around him and basically like looks to the ring as this source of like basically this oasis of fair play where the best man truly does win, which I guess I just find him quite compelling as a character. I have to admit, like even independently of the fight scenes, I actually think this movie has some really decent character work. Interesting. I thought so too. I thought this one had like the best arc. And I saw somebody when I was reading about it, describe it as like, if this was a different era, if this were the eighties or something, uh, Atkins would be a household name like John Claude Van Damme. Like he, this almost feels like that kind of movie, like like a Chuck Norris or or something like that, an '80s action star for sure. Who is he's forming a friendship in the fire here, first being a rival to Turbo, and then growing this like begrudging respect, and then they kind of form this bond. Yeah, I think it, it it unfolds in a way that actually feels natural in insofar as something this heightened can feel natural, uh, and I, I really groove with it. I, I find that I like almost in spite of myself, I really get into the drama in this one, because um, of course the the tournament is corrupt. That goes without saying. Like it, all the fights are being rigged in favor of the Colombian fight fighter uh, to win. I like this. Like I like the way that the way they wear down the fighters is they have them do like Looney Tunes esque uh, chain gang work where they're literally taking <laughs> sledgehammers tied together, 
hitting rocks with sledgehammers. I don't know what they're actually supposed to be doing, but they're hitting rocks with sledgehammers. Yeah, I want to know yeah. how this became the shorthand for hard labor. I got to read into the history of this, because this is always what you see, is once people get sent off to prison, they're breaking rocks. And I don't know what the industrial use of this is. Like, is this gravel manufacturing? I'm not I sure. Guess. Or is I don't know. it like, like clearing space for like building or something? I don't know. Either way, machines exist and <laughs> yeah. would assuredly do this job more efficiently. I don't know. I, I work in telesales for my day job. I don't know the logistics or the economics of rock quarrying. Yeah. That's that's something I've thankfully been insulated from in my day-to-day -day life. Not a lot of sledgehammer use when you're making phone calls for sales. But true, true. Yeah, so the guy that the gangsters are trying to boost and make sure he wins... They don't make him work down in the quarry. But then Turbo and Boyka are chained together. They're, you know, it's almost like that it's intended to make them enemies, but it helps yeah. them bond. And they come to the realization that they're like, well, we spend all day breaking rocks anyway. Maybe this could be our training. It's like, I mean, you're getting the workout either way, dudes. It's like, you don't even really need to be conscious of it. You're training all along. Better to be doing this than sitting in a lounge chair doing heroin like the Colombian. I, was, I wasn't clear if that was meant to be heroin or if it was meant to be like anabolic steroids. I'm sure it was supposed to be steroids. All right. Well, it comes in a bag. So, yeah, I guess yeah, that would it, make it, sense. It has a lot of the sort of semiotics of heroin. Also, just like the actor's reaction to it, um, the guy who plays the Colombian, uh, Delore, um, is uh, Marco Zoror, who's also, he, he's actually Chilean. He's a Chilean martial artist who got his start as like a leading man in like local low budget movies a few years earlier. I think this is his first English language role. He's having so much fun as the as the sort of haughty baddie in, yeah. this, in this film. He's He's just hamming it up and having a riot he's he's just such a blast to watch i thought in general pretty much you could say that about everything here is it just kind of clicked a little bit more it's like the cast was having fun the story was kind of fun the dynamics were well designed and, and compelling and i don't know just like the flow of the movie i i was more engaged i thought too suffered more from just being so formulaic and you know it, it had really terrific and heightened uh, martial arts scenes but this one everything it felt felt like they they had nailed the formula they had figured it out and they had brought in some fun flavor. just made it more colorful i guess i think so yeah i think this is where the series really comes into its own it's like just it, it's just a, a showcase um fighting movie and like they they know how to dress up in such a way that it makes it it makes it more enjoyable and like all the sort of secondary parts like have a little bit of flair and flourish to them and um yeah so obviously, like the the big climactic fight is between um, Adkins and Zoror. Uh, this is this last fight scene is insane. It goes on for something like ten minutes, all told, um, including the world's most generous ten count in in the middle. Oh yeah, he's like, in the middle of it. One when he's falling out of the <laughs> ring. Well, it also like goes into slow motion, so lets him drag it out even more. But I want to circle back to something you said. You said. Obviously, the final fight is between the Colombian and uh, Boyka. And I was like, yes. whoa, that was not obvious to me. I was surprised that uh, 
they went this route because it seems like it's going to be Turbo versus Boyka. But then they started being friends. I was like, this is going to be interesting if they have to fight, if they're friends. But then we get that late second act twist where uh, they they use. I, I feel like this is like something that you would be aware of. Like if you have the hammer, you can use the hammer to hit the chain and then yeah. they could the chain. They can run away. It's like, oh, they're chained to each other. They can't escape. Well, it was very easy to break the chain. He just had to swing the sledgehammer once. So I think they break the sledgehammer on the chain. That's actually oh, a fairly resilient chain. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, they have to do it some other way. But I mean, the other alternative is you could go the O Brother or Art Thou route, and anybody who's chained together can just run off together. But oh, that's true too. Yeah. But yeah, basically, they they stage a prison break for Turbo, and he manages to get away. And since he's a marine, he can live in the woods. Yeah. 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 So like Boyka has to take on the final fight in his stead. Um, which is this absolutely grueling mar- like he spends the first half of this fight getting the shit kicked out of him. It's great. Um, like Delore is like Marcus Aurora is something like six five and his limbs are about four miles long. And he, he's coming out with these insane, like acrobatic, like flip kicks that look like they would break you in half if they landed. But Boyka just like bears up and he comes back into the ring. There's this amazing sort of mid-fight. Uh, moment where he just sort of climbs back into the ring, just walks very slowly up to Delore as the the crowd slowly starts to chant his name, and it just sort of starts to catch on and pick up. It's such a cinematic moment. Like I think Florentine has said, uh, the director uh, returning here from two, he's very influenced by Sergio Leone. He really likes um, like the good, the bad, and the ugly, and Once Upon a Time in the West and those sort of westerns, and he sort of like does a similar thing where he uses a lot of extreme long shots and extreme close-ups and alternates between them uh, very dynamically. And it makes the moment feel very heightened and very mythological mm-hmm. in a way that I appreciate it. Uh, it it's, a, it's a really cool scene over and above just the choreography, which is also top-notch. Something else I liked about the camera work in this one or I guess it's the post-production, but everything seemed to kind of be color-graded a little extra red. And so it, yeah. it really emphasized whenever anybody would, like, spit out blood or there would be blood on the ground. Uh, it's just this, like, dirty reddish-orange everything. You can really tell that 300 came out between 2 and 3. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, because you kind of have, like, the dramatic almost ballet-esque like body smacked and pivoting to the side with blood teeth shooting out that exactly. made me think of the slow-mo violence in 300 yeah and also the uh the speed ramping there's very heavy speed ramping uh in this film which sort of like goes back to what i was saying about the sort of glorification like whole, these sort of poses being held in midair um in these sort of like super balatic like ways that look like they should defy physics but it, it's not these guys just can actually do that because they're talented it's pretty crazy yeah yeah but <clears throat> um good good final scene i i like that also from this final fight this is i thought was a really good payoff on the movie leading up to it is like it's pretty much this i thought it was going to be more of this when i realized what it was doing but basically he realizes he could take the improvise, adapt, overcome mantra, and he could improvise and adapt himself. And how does he do that? Well, he takes the lessons from all the different martial arts that he's learned from all the other different uh, fighters, and he he implements them so that he's not just this kind of one-dimensional fighter. He can bring in all these different things to to beat the bad guy. So it's like he brings everything together. He really is the most complete fighter in the world because he's yes. got something yeah. from all the countries 
in him now. Although one moment where he's like using this lesson that grossed me out was so remember in two, it ended with him getting the horrible leg break. And so this is a weak point for him. And surprisingly few of his adversaries are actually like kicking at his leg, which obviously that's the first thing you should be doing. Uh, but the Colombian has cottoned on and is kicking at his leg. And so for the, the time when Boyka is down and you're wondering, oh, is he out too? Uh, he's like writhing on the floor with the hurt leg and it's like actually starting to bleed. And then he sees his shit mop sitting there <laughs> and he's like, no, I'm determined. And so to bandage my leg, I'm going to rip the sponge off the toilet mop and tie it around my open wound. I don't know if that's sound medically. <laughs> I think no. he also does it during the 10 count, by the way, or like yeah. he at least grabs it during that. It's like, wow. So you're getting all this inspiration. You're climbing back up. You're b tying a bandage around your knee and you're walking up to the other guy all in this 10 seconds. Pretty yeah. impressive. Ch Chekhov's ship mop. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so um, also like cool payoff just uh, at the very end as well, which is um, Boyka basically the the guards basically refuse to let him go they say that because he freed turbo uh, he has to bear the same penance and he has to um, get shot like the rest of the the losers um so they take him out to the middle of nowhere and they're the guards are preparing to shoot him when out of the woods who who arrives but turbo uh who um is packing a handgun of his own and shoots down the the guards before uh Boykin can die and it turns out that this whole time gaga the uh the Russian boss was actually backing Boyka and basically supported him uh, his prison break uh, of his own. I loved both of those reveals, uh, yes. especially Gaga. I mean, Gaga was a pretty minor character in two, but he got a lot of funny moments in three and even had like a dark moment when you think he's betrayed Boyka and that he's mm. the one pulling all the strings. But then finally in this moment you learn, oh, but he was pulling for Boyka. He's like, mm -hmm. I put all my money behind you. I knew you were going to win. And then everybody's friends and they kind of do like almost to the point of jumping into the air and all three of them high five. <laughs> it's an astonishingly happy ending. Like it's it's Boyka limping off into the sunset, clutching a briefcase full of money, yeah, I like cackling how, to himself. I like how all these right. movies end with, oh, you're you're free. Also, here's a briefcase of money. It's like that's that's <laughs> the, the conclusion. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, like, what else do you want? Like, this is the thing, like, they're actually very sentimental movies, like, in the actual, like, outline of the plot, despite all the sort of, like, swearing and violence. Oh, you mentioned the swearing. So in the first movie, Peter Falk just says the F word constantly. Mm -hmm. And what was another thing that set apart the first movie from all the subsequent ones for me, I watched them all on Amazon, and whoever did the captions for the first one was like morally opposed to the swearing. And so they would just leave it blank anytime that the people swore. Oh. But not the case in the sequels. Whoever did the captions for two through four, they would write it all out. So interesting. Yeah. Some more are good um good Adkins as Boyka line readings here as well. Like if I am champion of the toilets, what does that make you when I kick the fucking shit out of you? <laughs> Some good good profanity. 
Although Boyka never really loses his edge with just snapping at people and telling him, do what I say. I really noticed it in the fourth movie, which we're going to get to. It's like when he's supposedly kind of reformed here after this third one, he's still just as much of a he's still got his rough edges. Yeah. So, someone you would cross the street to avoid if you saw him <laughs> coming the other way, probably. Right. Right. But I liked what you said, Andrew, that he kind of believes that the truth will come out in the ring. That's mm. where things are settled. That's where your true metal is tested. And so just he's constantly wanting people to put their money where their mouth is. Like, don't talk about being great. You got to show it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is kind of the, the essence of the character to me. Um, and yeah, why, why I find him like, despite how sort of two dimensional, essentially, like he's, he's a great two dimensional anti-hero, similar to someone like, um, Kurt Russell as Snake Plissken, in my opinion, like there's, it's not nuanced, but it is distinct. If that makes sense. Yeah. So, um, any, anything else on number three guys, or do you want to talk four? Let's let's talk Boyka Undisputed, the fourth one. So I guess it isn't. I mean, it is the fourth one. And I saw one marketing as Undisputed for Boyka. But the official title where I've seen it a couple places is Boyka colon Undisputed. Yes. Um, it, in, in fact, in the territory where I watched it, it's Undisputed Fight for Freedom. Uh, so like, it's one of these um, movies that's been... It's been given a lot of different titles depending on the market that it's it's released into for fairly arbitrary and specious reasons. But uh, yeah, this is officially Undisputed 4, um, which was released in 2017, I want to say. Yep, 2017. And rightfully, this should have starred Turbo, if we're going to go hero to villain, hero to villain. Or Delore. I could have I could have gone for a Delore movie. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. That's true too. That could have worked, but uh, no, we're sticking with Boyka because he's the he's the fan favorite, uh, who is now living a, a free life in Ukraine, back when that was still possible. Sadly, but um, basically, he's paid to have his knee fixed, and now he's trying to make his living as a actual like legitimate pro fighter um, in the in these sort of like amateur circuits, working his way up to the big time. Also, he has a very strong spiritual component in this one which hadn't really come up before and to the point that he's like giving all his money to the church and he's friends with this monk i well i think they're you know eastern orthodox like the russian church yeah russian orthodox i'm pretty sure i do think he and now i'm trying to remember because in the start of the second one i was getting the characters still sorted out in my head but there's a couple of characters who have like religious things going on is he one of the ones who has is like a we show, see him praying sort of at the beginning of the movie. Okay. Yes, I, I'm pretty sure that's the first shot we ever see of him in Undisputed 2. He's uh, he's playing praying at this sort of little homemade shrine uh, to um, in, his, in his cell. So yeah, the, the iconography's up been there right from the very start. This is really the first film where the actual like religious conviction comes into things. Um, where yeah, he like he's scared of hell, essentially. Like he's wanting to make sure that he's um He's redeeming himself on Earth in the time he has left. And this sort of gets kicked into overdrive when he's in the ring fighting um, the, another challenger, uh, Victor. And uh, over the course of a fairly grueling opening fight, he inadvertently kills the guy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Victor just keeps coming back. Victor but, was yeah. not the victor. No, very, very uh, much yeah. not so. But 
I do want to talk more about this um, this obsession with the the religious aspect because I do feel like it came up frequently in the series that the fighters would have these like religious conscience aspect that's like an important thing to them even as i mean they're like they're all murderers basically and they all are like beating the living tar out of each other but then they also are like talking about god and how you must be respectful and stuff and it was just a very interesting uh dynamic i don't know yeah i i think to an extent that's partly an mma cliche there's a like a long-standing sort of like almost a running joke about like latin american fighters who will be like very intensely religious they'll have like uh they'll be covered with like rosary or uh cross tattoos and stuff like that i think the iconography is being invoked certainly in two and three basically just to sort of give like make the character scarier in a way like he's uh, got his own like warped notion of morality. Hmm. Uh, it, it it makes him come across more intense if he has this sort of like spiritual interiority as opposed to just being a brute. Yeah, he's got uh, zealotry. Yeah, yeah. But um, this is sort of the film where they foreground that a bit more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He so he kills Victor, and so he's completely racked with guilt about this, and like completely changes his life plan for what's going on with him. But I also am wondering, like, has he not mortally wounded many people in his many fights? Yeah. It seems like that all the, like this shouldn't be a new development that the losers of these fights suffer pretty, pretty badly. I, I agree, honestly. And that's sort of one thing that takes this movie down a notch for me. It makes Boyka too nice in a way that I kind of find hard to reconcile with his previous characterization. Mm-hmm. Um, like this is the same guy who punched like one of his own men in the throat after he rigged a fight in his favor in Undisputed 2. Mm-hmm. I can sort of buy the transition to being an anti-hero in 3. Like that to an extent felt natural. Like the the sort of like, um, the, this sort of self-martyrdom he does in, in 4, I find it kind of hard to buy like that he'd that he's redeemed himself this much right to an extent i guess you could make the case that it's the passage of time because like obviously he's older here like this is a good 10 years after uh two in real life like you know adkins is now 10 years older and he's playing the character as a bit more world weary perhaps mm-hmm. but that, that's me trying to sort of square that circle and the camera work is totally different again because now drones are affordable and so you get some you get some drone shots in this, and just the the color grading looks different from three. It's it's like grayer. Yeah, I noticed it did some interesting, like, in the midst of an effect sort of thing. It would like intensify the color grading so that the blood or like some accent would get more strongly colored for for just a shot. Yeah, I could see that. It's worth noting this is a new director this time out. This is uh, Toto Chapkanov, although um, Florentine's still uh, um, credited as a producer, and I gather he was still pretty involved. Yeah, according to the Wikipedia page, he he had every intent to direct it, and he came up with the story and um, ended up producing it, but his wife fell ill, and so he needed to spend some time uh. away. And so rather than delay it, they hired someone else to direct it, but he still kind of had his fingerprints on it. Yeah, yeah. So Chapkanov is, uh, Chapkanov is sort of acting as uh, Florentine's amanuensis in this movie. 
Um, but you're right, it does feel quite distinct. I think probably by virtue of the different techniques available to a low-budget production that were available uh, right. six years later, because that sort of thing's changing all the time, and you can really tell the differences in sort of uh, low-budget cameras and low-budget um, digital um, digital cinematography in terms of the tools that filmmakers have from, from year to year. Kind of what makes these uh, sort of like borderline feasible shoots kind of interesting to watch just as artifacts i think mm -hmm. but the fight choreography has not suffered for it i i have to say because like this probably has the highest like overall quality of athleticism in the whole series like it's it's very like there's probably a good four or five like major fights in this movie where like any of them could have served as the climax in two like the 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 performers are just like really working to push it to the next level here i thought yeah i thought it was good too although i have to say i was a little numbed to it having watched four of these movies in a row but it's it's brutal yeah i don't blame you like if you're doing them back to back then Yes, that'll happen. Like I, I remember, like I was really looking forward to this film in the run up to its release. Like this was one of my most anticipated movies of 2017. So when it did come out, like I was like, "Yes, we're back." Yeah, yeah, I can see that. But like, I, I totally get that if you're watching three of these in a row, it's gonna <laughs> start to turn into white noise. I watched them one a night, so it was about a day's gap worth there. But yeah. Oh man, e even so. <laughs> Um, so on, on to the plot here, um, he, so he goes basically to Russia. So, okay. I was trying to parse this and I had to think a little bit about it to understand it. So he's in Ukraine at the beginning and he's a free man there, but he's like an escaped convict from Russia, but it turns out Victor is from Russia. So he decides he's going to go basically try to make things right with Victor's family so to do that, he has to go back into Russia. But when he goes there, he's going to be a fugitive. Yeah, he's going to be a fugitive again. Yeah. So if the cops catch him, he's he's back in prison. So he's basically putting his own safety, his own freedom at risk here to to go. It's not exactly clear. So he has like a little letter. I don't know if it's like a exactly what he's trying to do. I guess he's just going to go figure out who this who this person's family was and if there's anything he can do to help them out. It's not, he doesn't really have a specific task at the start, at least that I can see, but once he sees what's there, he gets his task. It kind of feels like he could write a letter or something <laughs> or email, but I guess. I mean, he does make the offer of give his prize money to the family. Uh, and maybe that would be harder to do a wire transfer, but it's like, if you, if that's the one country you're not supposed to go to, you know, really think about whether you want to go there. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if like um, Western Union services like um, escaped Russian convicts in Ukraine. I think you might have you might have to jump through a few hoops to get that transfer approved. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, essentially what we learn is that um, Victor's widow um, uh, Alma is has now inherited his debts to a local uh, gang boss um, whose name eludes me off the top of my head. Zorab, Z-O-U-R-A-B, Zorab. Zorab. Yeah. Who, I, um, I love Zorab. I thought he was the best. There's like a whole, throughout the series, you have all these like uh, 
of people pulling the strings and like high up mob bosses and stuff. He was my favorite one. I thought he was really funny and he just kind of had like a smarminess to him. I, I wish we had at least seen Gaga after his face turn in three, but he doesn't come back. Yeah, I, I agree. Like I, I, I agree. I like Zorab well enough. Like he's a, he's a good slime ball, but I did, I, I just wanted a little bit of Gaga back. Even a cameo I would have taken. The only person to be in three movies other than Boyka is the Russian warden guy who's kind oh, of this yeah. bald presence. He's like the MC of the sequel fight. <laughs> right enough. Yeah, I don't think we ever get that guy's name. Hmm. Yeah, he was just called Warden on Amazon. Yeah. Also for yeah. Alma, pretty funny. Of course, she's the uh, widow of Victor, the, the guy that Boyka killed. Mm -hmm. But also she happens to have started a community center to help all the kids. Also, she's a scantily clad waitress at the mob boss's uh, well, you know club. And also she happens to be the quote unquote favorite of the mob boss. Just so happens to be the one. And I guess like the the way that they square all of that is they took out the big loan to make the community center to improve the neighborhood. But it still felt like you were kind of pushing a lot of personas onto this one character. <laughs> it really does like feel like they're lining up a lot of dominoes here in these in the first act, aren't they? But, mm -hmm. Yeah. But uh, anyway, so uh, straightforward plot, really. Boyka just makes a deal with Zurab to um, win three fights uh, and uh, beat his champion in exchange for Ama's freedom uh, and, you know, having her released from her debts. And uh, Zurab agrees to this, um, but he has to do the, the three fights on consecutive nights. And the uh, the ticking clock in the plot is that he needs to get on a bus back to Budapest for his like actual professional fight debut. Um, but he has to win these three fights beforehand. And obviously that takes a lot of toll on the body. So, uh, so it goes. Well, the wording is you got to beat, you got to win three fights and beat my champion. Yes. Which, uh, which does come back to bite them. Like, I, I feel like as Faustian bargains go, that's fairly lame. <laughs> fine print in that contract yeah it seems pretty straightforward when you, when it's said yeah yeah <laughs> this is like just get this sort of thing in writing or better yet don't make deals with mob bosses in the first place that's true although i say it got me i didn't figure out what was going to happen i was like huh yeah, we're, fair. We're, that fight was pretty easy for what was supposedly the last fight yeah. i actually don't know if when they made the deal that the guy in charge was had all his plan figured out. Oh, you don't think he's like, wait, I think what I said was blank, so I could frame it as blank. <laughs> yeah, that's honestly how I think it went. Yeah, I wouldn't put it past him. But um, yeah, so three rounds, each uh, progressively harder. The The second is against um, two fighters at once, which I thought was kind of a neat wrinkle. Um, really good sort of coordination between these two, uh, two brothers. Um, one who's played by Andy Long and the other who is uh, Tim Mann, who's also the choreographer of the movie. Uh, so pretty neat, uh, pretty neat sort of two against one sort of fight, like two two hyenas fighting a lion. Um, the third fight is against uh, Brahima Chibake, uh, who uh, is playing Igor, who's like this movie's like haughty, uh, too big for his boots, sort of kung fu guy. And that's a really good bout. That's a, that's a really solid sort of four, four or five minutes of really intense um, acrobatic, like, blow exchanging. Um, 
I honestly kind of wish that Igor had been the final opponent. I'm not going to lie. So the whole structure of this is weird because they're constantly calling that obnoxious talkative guy the champion. Mm. But we had already seen at the very start of the movie a different, bigger, scarier guy. And so I was thrown for a loop. I was like, what? This isn't the dude. There was that other dude. Yeah. And then they pull that other dude out as like a surprise twist. And you're left thinking, well, no, I figured he was going to show up because you showed us him first. Oh, uh, see, I got tricked. I was the I was the idiot here because I was like, they showed that fight. And for me, the takeaway from the initial, like the opening fight was this is just a fight club with like a lot of badass fighters. That's going to be an oh, important sure. setting. Uh-huh. Not necessarily that we'd see that specific guy. Well, but then he when got he came so back much out, up. he's like an orc. That's true. He's, They've he's got him wild. in a Hannibal Lecter, like <laughs> right. manacles and a muzzle. And I Googled the actor's name who plays. What, what's, okay, so let's talk about what's the name of the final. Go ahead. Martin Ford is the actor's name. He's a six foot eight, uh, 320 pound bodybuilder from England uh, who is playing Koshmar, a, a cannibal rapist who acts as this film's final boss. Uh, so basically the end, the end of the line in terms well, of... Now, does he... Does he rape people? Does he eat people? Or does he rape cannibals? I don't know. I'm pretty sure this is all like uh, flavor text. I don't think any of this is um, spelled out in dialogue. I just remember this from the interviews beforehand. And so I googled Martin Ford, and he is just as imposing in like when he's just a dude standing there as he is in the movie. He's, yeah. he's ridiculous. He's huge. I looked, I looked him up. He towers over Brock Lesnar. Nope, nobody towers over Brock Lesnar. That's ridiculous. <laughs> wow. But uh, yeah, so he's the final boss, like the end like of like the undisputed series tradition of large, tattooed, scary guys. And um, I've got to be honest, I think that compared to the Delore fight, I think Koshmar's kind of a letdown. Mm. Partly because I don't think they established him well enough in the movie as a as a rival presence to Boyka. Also because like Martin Ford, like he's a bodybuilder. He's not a martial artist. And like trying to present him like he's sort of like able to counter Boyka's agility, it doesn't look all that persuasive. Like I, th- I think Boyka's always the most compelling to watch when he's up against someone as agile as himself um, because he's been characterized as a big guy throughout the series. Like having him mm-hmm. fight a slightly bigger guy isn't super dramatically compelling. What got me here is that so first there's the twist where the gangster says, uh-uh-uh, I said three fights and beat my champion. Not that the third fight yeah. was going to be against the champion. So my champion is this big orc man, and you have to fight him right away. Every subsequent round in all the movies, they've had breathers in between, and they, you know all like legalistic discussions of, well, how long can I train before the next one? And this time they just say, and you're going to fight him right now, right after you just had that other fight. Yeah, that I was like, oh, we're we're doing it, we're going. Yeah, although in fairness, like right after he beats Koshmar against all odds, like um, he ends up just trying to shoot Boyka, so that was his backup plan. Right, it's still not over. First, he sends in a bunch of guys to hit him with baseball bats. <laughs> it's like, what the hell, dude? <laughs> Jesus, he can't catch Ooh. a break. Yeah, the legalistic um, language doesn't really uh, hold water in the in the final racketing, does oh, it? Oh no, you, you didn't notice the baseball bat clause down there at the bottom. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. One thing I liked about this movie in general was I how to say this. I like that there was a feminine presence in this film. I think it added it added some nice texture. This is true. And some nice dynamic that was there. Like the relationship between Alma and Boyka, it it, it had some it's she's not quite a romantic interest. She sort of is, but like it, it added uh, a different flavor there that wasn't just testosterone smack and testosterone. This yeah, is it, true. Like Undisputed 3 is one of the most male films ever. I, I'm pretty sure there's not a female speaking part in the entirety of the third film. Wow. Yeah, it's like the Jungle Book. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So um, yeah, 4 does have that sort of dynamic between Boyka and Arma, which does read as quite, it reads as very melancholy. Like they're both very damaged people um, basically trying to sort of find a way back to sort of something resembling happiness. And it's not presented in, it is presented in, in platonic terms, which I think is kind of uh, neat for a movie of this vintage. Yeah, and I think it worked for what it was. I mean, it's not an especially deep or explored dynamic, but it kind of is for the for the the level of what we would expect here. It's like she's dealing with the fact that this is the guy that killed her husband, but also is like sacrificing himself to try and get her freedom. And he's also like this we got this weird moral sense that he's trying to discover. And then she's like appreciating that, but also dealing with her own stuff. And I was like, OK, enough of this conveys. This is like yeah. vintage, like, oh, Dan is looking for the, the drama in this as opposed to the punching here. No, it worked pretty well, I thought. Uh, all I will say, though, is if somebody kills me, like, to any future romantic partners, don't cozy up to that guy. Don't be putting <laughs> unctuants on his back. Uh, you're going to get haunted. Like, you're writing that <laughs> into your will after this film. Exactly. <laughs> but, Brian, if you... If you like put yourself in a job where the job of that person is to physically damage you as much as he can, I feel like that that changes it a little bit. Yeah, it's par for the course. You're right. Can't be too surprised. I think it helps that um, the actress Teodora Duhovnikova is is pretty good. Like I think she's yeah, um, she's solid. Yeah, and it, it's also something I appreciated is like they cast her. Like I think she was something like late thirties when the film was made. So it, it reads as, you know, like it, this is an adult woman. It's not like eye candy for, for Boyka to win as a prize. Yeah, definitely. But um, yeah, so that is Undisputed 4. Ends with um, Zorab uh, dying to Boyka right before Boyka gets arrested by the Russian authorities and goes back to jail. Um, That's right. Yeah. No, yeah, it's even better than that because, you know, Zorab has his minions beat down Boyka with a baseball bat multiple baseball bats, I should say. And then he goes out and he chases after Zurab. So I was like, uh-oh, this is bad. And he pulls out a gun and he shoots him. And Boyka's <laughs> like, okay. And then just keeps walking and goes and strangles him despite having been shot in the gut. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he got shot three times. It was like once in an arm, once in a leg, and then Zurab gets him in the gut. Yeah. So he's all messed up. Yeah. Remember how the plot of three like hinged on this one injury he took, um, like having his knee broken? Um, so, like, I'm wondering just how much of a fighting career he has left after this. It's a good point. The events of four. I did think it was kind of poetic. So he he's like all of the other ones ended with a character, a main character free and with a briefcase full of cash. But this one, he he surrendered all of those things so that Alma could have her freedom and her wealth or I guess her financial independence. And he was going back into prison 
essentially of his own volition. I mean, he basically knew that he was going to be arrested if he kept doing this. So it was kind of like a, a, a twist on the endings that we had previously seen. It was kind of more of an emotional victory than a, a victory that you would see where he got everything that he wanted. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's uh, It definitely cuts a bit more of an ambivalent uh, tone at the ending, but you get the impression that Boyka's, like, you know, he's achieved some sort of, like, peace with himself by the very mm-hmm. end of the series. I don't know if we're getting another one. Like, at this at this point, I kind of doubt it. It was honestly kind of a bit of an unlikely... It, it was unlikely that four would get made in the first place, because um, these films don't make very much money. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I think they've been pretty... They've had their budgets progressively slashed, so I don't think an undisputed five is is in the cards. And obviously, like Adkins, like all all power to him, but he's not getting any younger. You can't do these kind of kicks like once you're into your like late forties. So there was four years between one and two, four years between two and three, and then seven years between three and four. And so it's 2023. So seven years after four would be next year. And I take it there's no wins of a five. So it does seem like the window is probably closing on that one. Seems like it. There was a talk of a TV series for like five minutes back mm. in 2020. Interesting. But that, that didn't seem to come to any kind of fruition. One thing that I don't think we talked about that I'm kind of curious now that we've kind of looked at the whole arc where we have the kind of bizarre drama first one up turning to a straight martial arts series afterwards. Why did they make undisputed to a sequel to undisputed when it's basically an entirely new movie it has one carryover character who is generic enough that you could have written him in in a totally new movie what was the the inspiration here i will this is a mystery i will take with me to my grave i don't understand it for the life of me (laughs) because i mean it's not even like they're getting brand name recognition from having bought the rights to the series or anything because the original undisputed was a flop yeah, nobody's nobody's heard of it nowadays. Who isn't doing an undisputed series retrospective? Now, one thing I saw on I, it might have been Wikipedia, or it might have been some article I read was that although it it flopped in theaters, it became one of those movies that like was always on cable, and also you could always buy on pay per view at a hotel if you just wanted to like have. So it, like became like uh, it had long legs in the uh, the pay per view and uh, cable movie circuit. I guess. But still, kind of surprising that it turned into what it was, an MMA series. Yeah, it's one of the more bizarre sort of ways that a series has evolved over time. Like, this, like, cable staple, like, not particularly well-loved or financially successful film that nevertheless was made by a legendary director and featured a lot of uh, high-wattage actors, ends up having its cultural legacy completely eclipsed by its direct-to-TV, direct-to-video, rather, sequels. It's like, I can't think of another instance of that, like, anywhere. Pretty bizarre, yeah. Yeah. But, um, so, yeah, that that's uh, that's the Undisputed series, man. Um, this was, uh, yeah, this, this is a series that's quite near and dear to my heart, I've got to be honest. Um, one, one that I've carried with me for a decade. What martial arts series or maybe directors would you place above Indisputed? Like if you're making your primer to Andrew's uh, martial arts movies canon, where does this fall and what's above it? Oh man, this that's a tricky one. I would say this is pretty high in my estimation as far as English language uh, martial arts movies go. Um, as, as far as like homegrown 
series are. In terms of like the real classics, it's it's all Chinese movies, really. It's it's Hong Kong movies from the seventies, eighties, and nineties. In terms of series, in terms of IPs, the Once Upon a Time in China movies, the SPL movies, the two Drunken Master films, Police Story. Basically anything that Jackie Chan directed from about 1978 through to about 1996 hmm. um, is, you can't go far wrong, really. Um, okay. But, oh, oh man, like, yeah, ask me for a primer on like good Kung Fu movies one of these days. I, I can probably write up a, a dossier. Yeah, we got uh, Brandon Klein from Alternate Ending to do one for Slashers for us. So we could get you to do a martial arts one for us or a Kung Fu one or something for us. I will try and structure my thoughts in that regard. Yeah, t- take your time, but that would be pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I don't know. Any other, uh, Brian, anything that you, observation, stray observations, uh, uniting thoughts, anything you wanted to throw in here? I found it interesting that the series is called Undisputed, <laughs> despite the only character who is truly never lost, we left behind in the first film. Lots of dispute. <laughs> it's true. It's like at one point Gaga says to, to Boyka, like, good knee, no knee. Uh, you're still the, the best fighter in the world. I'm like, I, I think like by the transitive property, Monroe Hutchins is the best fighter in the world, right? Yeah. Do the family tree on that one. It's right. like, yeah. this person beat this person and this person beat this person. So yeah, Wesley Snipes, man. That's who it is. That would have been a great twisted four. Wesley Snipes walks out. <laughs> that's the final boss yeah by that point i'm pretty sure he was out in pr- out of prison in real life um so that would have been kind of thematically like i don't know it rhymes as george lucas would say <laughs> yeah yeah it's like poetry <laughs> it's gonna be great but uh, i something else that occurred to me and this doesn't really like it, it's not something that particularly impacts my estimation of four but i do think it's kind of interesting like just as a something to note that a film that began starring uh, Wesley Snipes and Ving Rhames uh, by its third sequel has no uh, black characters with speaking roles. Oh, wow. That's true. That didn't even yeah. occur to me. Yeah. Cause the first movie I think maybe indirectly was trying to do a little bit of commentary on the image of a black man as a powerful celebrity. I think that's in there. Yeah. There's, there's hints of it at least. And then you're right. It's just an English guy playing a Russian dude, punching a lot of other white dudes. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And kicking them and other other uh, forms of physical violence. But I mean, fair play to them. I don't think they, that was a decision that resulted from any sort of like inherent cultural bias or like conscious cultural bias. Mm-hmm. I think it's just like they were following the, the guys who kicked and the, the audience wanted to see more of. Yeah, and that's where it was coming from. Yeah, I can see that. Well, I think I'm ready to rate these movies. Andrew, I assume you're familiar with our Is It Good? And are you ready to throw some ratings on these? For sure. Yeah, I've got mine prepared well in advance. Brian, you good? I've got my envelope. All right. So Is It Good is our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight-point goodness scale, ranging from very not good, which is a one out of eight, to our masterpiece rating, Toward a Good, which is an eight out of eight. So what we'll do is we'll go one, two, three, four, and for each movie, we'll have Brian rate, then Andrew, and then myself. Actually, you know what? Andrew, you can go last. You can be the dramatic reveal. We want to hear what yours is. So it'll be Brian, and then me, and then you. 
Okay, nice one. We'll do a little different. I don't know why, but we will. So Brian is Undisputed from 2002, directed by Walter Hill. Good. To me, this one is good-ish, which is what we call our four out of eight level. And this one was the most distinct. It felt like a theatrically released sports drama, kind of in the vein of a Rocky uh, with that element of the 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 quirk here is that it's set in prison, like it is the prison boxing movie. It knew its niche, yeah. Right, yeah. It established its niche. That's right, and it just kind of had a flavor that persisted, beginning to end, and then you close the book, and it had that final line of "We know who the real undisputed champ is," and it seemed like it was done. Um, pretty good. I was about to give it a five, but it's like right on the, the border for me. Um, it's muddied a little bit by like at the start, it's kind of hard to tell who the protagonist is. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I think I'm comfortable giving it a high four. So I'm going to say that this is a three. This is a not, not good film for me. Uh, I was tempted to give it higher. Just, I feel like it's in some ways it's a little more interesting because it's like trying to be a real movie with a little more thought and, and like overall cinematic craft behind it. Uh, there's like a, I don't know. We, as we said earlier, it's trying to be a real ass movie here, but I just felt like each of its components was not singularly interesting enough to quite get it into the good territory. I did like Rames. I thought he, I thought he gave a good performance. I like some of the directorial stuff, but the story never really built to anything. And you're right that the last moment is kind of cool, but I just felt like it was slow going and not especially rich getting there. So, you know, it's not, again, it's not, not good. It's not bad, but it just never got quite to, to particularly interesting or compelling for me. So I'm going to give it a three out of eight. Andrew, what about you? I'm right there with you, Dan. I'm uh, right on a three, relatively strong three, probably nibbling at the heels of a four. It's, um, yeah, as you say, Rames is good. I think some of the uh, directorial choices that Hill is making, like he's he's definitely pushing for something. Like this is not a film where like he was asleep at the wheel. Um, but I just don't think many of the choices really pay off. I don't think the story particularly hangs together um, as a, uh, piece of drama and like the themes it's going for just don't really coalesce so yeah I'm, I'm content to say like it's not a particularly good movie and one that i wouldn't really revisit or feel inclined to revisit if it wasn't attached to the the sequels that that succeeded it so that brings us to undisputed two so undisputed two is from 2006 and it is subtitled Last Man Standing, directed by Isaac Florentine. Brian, is Undisputed 2 Last Man Standing good? So this one, I think, suffers just because of how much of a loop it threw me for. It took me a while to kind of course correct and get my sea legs based on what the series was now. Uh, I'm going to give this a high two. Um, I don't know. I didn't vibe... It, it So I always am bothered when a character that we've seen already, the actor suddenly changes and they act like, oh, yeah, it's the same person. Uh, and I, I guess I should be a bigger person and just be able to get around that. But uh, that sets it back. 
and it you just are really struck by the difference in production between a direct-to-video thing and the the higher budget of the previous effort. Uh, if you are into martial arts movies, your mileage is probably going to vary. This really feels almost like a kung fu style thing. This felt like the floatiest of the films to me, the people just spending a lot of time in the air and really like marveling over the, the gimmickry of the flipping now. Because before it was just hands. Now now they flip. Um, so they that's flip where, now. That's, that's right. So that's where I'm at. So for me, Undisputed 2, I, I actually think as it, despite the fact that it has a lower budget, despite the fact that it had not quite as much cinematic ambitions, it had a clearer vision and it executed that vision more compellingly than Undisputed 1. And um, so for me, I'm going to bump it up a little. I I still was really, the thing that got me down was just how formulaic it was. It really made it feel kind of corny that like, the way that each of the character was so heavily typed and outrageous and the story itself didn't really build for me. I don't know why this one made my eyes roll where other other ones didn't quite so much, but I still think the action is, is pretty compelling the, the combat and um, it just kind of knew what it was a little more and you could feel that in the tone a little bit more. Um, I'm going to give this one a good ish. I think it's on, on the heels of a good movie and a good overall package for me. It didn't quite get there because I thought it was kind of corny, but I, I really like Michael Jai White. He's really fun, even though he's recast. And yeah, I mean, Boyka had me laugh out loud a couple times with just how outrageously macho and badass he is. Um, and, uh, just some terrific fights and even some of like the, the exploitative stuff was kind of it, it was verging on goofy like the the poop stuff and i actually found it almost like uh charming how how uh, over the top it was so not quite there all the way but still uh i thought i was glad that it knew what it was so for me the the change in tone actually kind of worked for me so i'm gonna give this a good ish it's a four and what about you andrew Awesome. Uh, once again, Dan, I'm actually right there with you. I'm right on the cusp between a four and a five for Undisputed 2. I think it's really the series still in sort of its larval form at this stage. This is when it was still kind of working out where it was going henceforth. Um, I think Michael Jai White's charming. I think Boyka is an extraordinary cinematic creation, um, and I'm glad that he uh, got... The, the sequels to himself. I think a lot of the plot setup is kind of contrived and the action, like I would probably bump this up a lot if the, the final fight actually delivered on, on the film's promises as it is, it feels kind of anticlimactic to me, but uh, there's a, there's a lot of good style. They, it, it lays the groundwork for the sort of type of choreography that the series would go on to perfect. So for me, this is just a, a very strong four, just bordering on a five. It's goodish. Cool. That brings us to Undisputed 3, Redemption from 2010. This is the one that brings in the fighters from around the world and has them in a tournament. So Brian, is Undisputed 3, Redemption from 2010, directed by Isaac Florentine, good? Oh, this was my favorite. I'm going to give it a high five, almost into the very good territory. I really thought, you know, I'd gotten used to 
the concept of where we were now with the series and it felt like this international tournament where everybody's got the different flavors of fighting it felt like we were building to this and you've got you know we had the prison fights in the first one and then the prison fights are taking place now in a new country and now it's it's almost like how in the last couple of years we've gotten wizard schools from the Harry Potter series that are in all the different countries. It's not just the one anymore. You know that everybody's got their their institution and now um, all the corrupt governments and all the corrupt wardens have pulled the strings to bring everybody together in the mix. And I liked the the color and I felt like they toned back the floatiness of the martial arts just a bit. Maybe that's just me getting used to it. Uh, but this was working for me, and so that's where it falls. What about you, Dan? Yeah, um, I, I'm basically at the same exact spot as you, Brian. You know, thinking about it, just putting this one rating above Undisputed 2, after we talk through it, feels like it should be a little bit more of a gap, but I guess maybe 2 is a lower 4, and this one's a higher 5, um, because I really thought this is where everything clicked. Uh, it was just a lot of fun. It's just you kind of had the best dynamics of the characters you had the best tone you had um just fun variety in color and all of the combat and i like turbo and i like where they went with boyka i feel like this as andrew said earlier was kind of the the peak boyka right here it was like where they really figured out both how he works as a character and how to optimize him as a, a fighter and um i thought this was uh quite good um so i'm gonna give it a five well i just want to butt in for just a moment and say that this whole movie to me felt like the meme of carl weathers and arnold schwarzenegger holding buff hands together <laughs> like oh, clasping yeah. hands it's that like macho racial harmony at work yeah i i like that i like that uh, relationship and the way that it developed so um what about you andrew Social equity through cage fighting. I like it. Um, so this is perhaps where I put myself out on a limb here a little bit, because um, I've got the rating my head wants to give it and the rating my heart wants to give it. But, um, you know, just given that um, we've, we've spent the last couple of hours talking about it and that um, this has been sort of my, what would the word be? Uh, missionary project. Uh, I'm full of missionary zeal for the Undisputed series right now. Yeah, shoot your shot. I'm going to follow my heart. I'm going to give this a seven. I think this, like, yes, I would use the phrase exceptionally good for, for a film of this vintage, for a film made um, out of like ex stuntmen who've never went to acting school um, for, you know, a, a Israeli born director with access to a few uh, interior sets and a gravel quarry. This is like the best possible realization of what you have with those parts. Like this is, the the best D to DVD action movie that you you can make with those sort of ingredients, and I think that's really remarkable to see. It's like it, it's making the absolute most out of a film of its own vintage. Like I love the characters, I love the performances they're giving, I love just the incidental flourishes. Um, I think the last fight scene is literally an all timer. I would actually put that in my top ten fight scenes ever made. Wow. And I love the ending. Um, so there's really nothing here I would change. No notes. Uh, seven out of ten, exceptionally good. Seven out of eight. Yeah, that's seven that's... out of eight. I beg your pardon. Yeah. One scene we didn't talk about is they they go into solitary confinement 
where they literally are completely composed or like uh, surrounded. They can't sit down or anything. And Turbo's like, I got to poop, man. I got to poop. And then finally he, he poops it down his, and he like rolls it out his pants leg. That was in this one, right? Wasn't that? Or was that in two? Right. I, yes. Yes, it was. Oh, God. Yeah. He's got the net, the rats nibbling at his, his feet and like the, the sort of like yeah. improvised Iron Maiden. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's that kind of film. Yeah. All right. That brings us to f- the movie that I have in my notes as Boyka colon Undisputed. The fourth in the series, as we talked about, probably goes by a couple different names, depending on where you saw it listed. This came out in 2017. A new director, Todor, Todor Chapkanov. And uh, Brian, is Boyka Undisputed good? So this one for me gets a four out of eight. Another good-ish. I think I would put it slightly behind the four I gave the first one. Uh, it has some of the same charm as, as the third one. I think we understand Boyka as a character now. And he's like continuing that redemption arc. Obviously, he's got the mission now of like fighting to keep this woman free, which is new. And like gives him new purpose. And it's uh, kind of uh, platonic just a, a like a good guy boyka relationship uh in a way that we hadn't had and the style that the film is shot is different it's it's gritty this feels much more like a digital video project um it's got that drone aspect it just it feels more contemporary uh but i don't think it reaches the high heights that three does like, I thought 3 kind of brought things to a good ending. Uh, it didn't necessarily need more, but I like overall what they did with the fourth chapter. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for me, this is like right on the four and five fence. I actually liked some of the new things it brought in with uh, adi- bringing in Alma and bringing in this. I liked this Zorab guy. I, I seem to be more fond of him than either of you were. I thought he was a... Uh, just kind of fun, campy presence as the the big bad who kept moving the moving the target for what he had to do, is and then he sent in the guy with the baseball bats as as the capper. And yeah, I mean, I guess the only reason I'm going to give it just below five is it's kind of hard to pin it on the movie itself. Maybe if I had watched it in the same frame that Andrew did, where I they had been movies I had seen a while ago, and I was excited about the next one. I, my hype would have been a little more fueled and I would have landed on the five, but I just felt a little bit numbed by all the violence and it's just like the overtopness of it just kind of wore me down. So in spite of bringing in things that I liked, I'm, I'm going to mark it below the, the previous one. I'm going to give this one a, a goodish on the upper end of the goodish. So for me, pretty, the, the ranking is definitely three at the top and then four is my second favorite and then two and then one. But Andrew, what about you? Is is Boyka Undisputed or whatever your preferred title for the fourth film is good? Uh, I do prefer Boyka Undisputed. And uh, Dan, our ranking is is the same, even if our scores aren't exactly aligned. Um, to me, this is a high end of five, um, high end of quite good. Am I getting that right? Five is just good, but it's if you, I could call it quite good, I suppose, if it's on the okay, high end sure. of that, yeah. Yeah, it's it's on the high end of that. It's on the high end of a five. Um, I like the um, 
it, it feels like another undisputed movie. It feels like they got the money together to to make another one and give the fans what they were due. And uh, this is what they came up with. It feels like a kind of a holding pattern in a way. It's not, it, it's not got the alchemy that three did, but it it feels like they've sort of figured out these characters. They've figured out the style that they're going for. They've figured out what people are coming to these movies for. Um, and as a fan, like I I came away quite satisfied. I think the final confrontation with Koshmar is a bit weak, and I think uh, it's it softens Boyka a bit too much for my taste. I like him more as the sort of anti-hero of three, but I think the choreography is pretty consistently stellar throughout, and that's what we're here for. So I can't really I can't really find an enemy to complain. It's a it's a really easy watch. It's really digestible, and it's really fun. Cool, undisputed. Four movies, Brian. Four movies, Andrew. We did it. We made it through it. This was fun. Yeah, I'm glad. This is uh, definitely out of our comfort zone. I always like being challenged with something new. So thank you for the for picking this. And and thank you for indulging me because um, yeah, I was I was interested in this just as an experiment for like uh, just to see where you guys would come down. And I'm I'm pleasantly surprised that you seem to have actually had a bit of fun with this series. I thought I I was hoping it wasn't <laughs> going to be too much of a gauntlet. Right. It was something new. And everybody, obviously, listening now should check out Two Friends Watch. Is that the official title? That's us, yes. So twofriendswatch.libsyn.net. We are out there. We've got our um, episode that we recorded with Dan a while back pending. So um, keep an eye out for the Goofy movie uh, for a change of flavor. And yeah, by all means, thanks. Uh, Thanks for the shout out. Yeah, and thank you. And, you know, you can... Always find us, including Andrew, on our Discord, which you can find at thegoodsfilmpodcast.com, a link to join our Discord. We had someone else join us uh, for the first time in a while this past week, and we'd love to see more of you out there. You can find Andrew as Thrash, I think, on the on there. So Yeah, that's the uh, teenage nom de plume that stuck with me, and I can't seem to shake it off. <laughs> so... Brian, next week, I think, did we decide we're going to do our April Fool's episode next, Brian? Oh, yeah. Yep. Sure. So we'll do our April Fool's episode. So Brian and I will each pick something that's not quite a film to discuss and rate. I know what I'm going to pick. Uh, Brian, I think you know what you're going to pick, too. I've got Do we want to share it now, or do we want to uh, just save it as a big fun reveal? Well, what about you, Dan? You feel strongly one way or the other? I don't I don't feel too strongly one way or the other. We can we can leave it as a surprise. Yeah, let's save it. Yeah. I'd quite like to be surprised. Anything else you want to pitch or throw out there before we, we wrap, Andrew? No, I'm good. Thank you very much for having me, guys. And yeah, we'll see you guys out there on the Discords. Yeah. Good to meet you. Have a good night. You too, Brian. Have a good night. You're phoning in from Scotland, so that's definitely Brian and I live about a half hour away from each other, so always nice to have someone Someone else, a voice from a different place, join us. Oh, Lord. Yeah, that's it. Different time zones. I've forgotten to eat. Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> Let you go go eat and have a good night. And thanks, everyone, for listening. And see you next time on The Goods. Bye.